deed is done. Is that better? The recording brother approves. Let's just remind ourselves then of where we are. In our studies this morning, you'll remember that we looked at these two principles, firstly of equality and then of hierarchy in the scriptural record based on Genesis 1 to 3. And then you'll remember how we saw that those two foundation principles can be traced through the book of the law into the balance of the Old Testament record and ultimately into the New Testament record itself as consistent Bible teaching concerning the role of the man and the woman, particularly in ecclesial life. So in our study then this evening, we're going to look now at this third principle, that of diversity. And where are we going to start our study this evening? Well, surprise, surprise, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. So let's have another look now at these verses that begin our story tonight. So in Genesis chapter 1 it says, in verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Now, do you know, brothers and sisters, there's absolutely no point to verse 27 when it says that he created them male and female. There was no point to this creative act unless their very difference served a purpose. Unless there had been diversity between the male and the female that God had some particular purpose with, there was no point in doing it so. He should have simply made human beings, shouldn't he? But he made a male and a female, and the very fact that they were different, that well, they were different because the father had a purpose in mind with that very difference that could not be accomplished in any other way. And so the very male and female creation of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 tells us that diversity was part of the father's intention from the beginning of time. They were deliberately different because the Father designed it to be so. As Brother Thomas says on one occasion, the Lord had created man in his own image, but he had yet to subdivide him into two. And he was going to do just that. He was going to divide him into two separate creatures with two individual sets of attributes, and they weren't to be the same. And so from Genesis 1 verse 27, from the very beginning it's clear that that diversity is intended because of the creative act that brought forth not just a male but also a female and that deliberately so in the purpose of God. And the very formation of these two was startlingly different because let's read Genesis 2 again now and look at the story of the formation of these two creatures. Because it says in verse 7 of Genesis 2, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. But in verse 22 it says, the Lord God builded a woman. 
And in the Greek, sorry, in the Greek, in the Hebrew, it is obviously getting late in the day. In the Hebrew, it's clear that these two words are quite different words. The word for the making of the man in verse 7 and the word for the formation of the woman in verse 22 are deliberately different words. They're both made by God, but they're not made the same. And they're not made in the same way because the word for forming the man in verse 7 is the word yatsar, which means to mould as a potter. But the word in verse 22 is bana, which means to build as a builder. So in the very circumstances of, of the formation of these two, there is deliberate difference put in the way that they are brought forth. So let me just summarise that for you. You see, the male was formed by the divine potter as an organic creation in himself. But the female was made by the divine builder as a unique extension of another. The male tends towards that which will personally achieve. The female tends towards that which will mutually reciprocate. The male, by the law of independence, was moulded as a creature of individuality. The woman, by the law of sympathy, was fashioned as a person of companionship. And the two were never the same from the beginning. They were not the same. And that diversity that they had was because the father, from the very beginning, had a reason for that diversity that he intended to use in their very makeup and their very personality for the roles that he intended them to perform. They were made on different bases, brothers and sisters, and so the words used to describe their creation are different. Well, did you notice also the effect of Genesis 2 verse 18? Just coming back and revisiting that as well. Because in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18 it says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him help meet for him. Now remember what we said about the word help meet for him. The word literally means one as a counterpart or a mirror image. Now, a mirror image. You see, in a mirror, do you see exactly the same thing? And the answer is, no, you don't see the same thing in a mirror, do you? What do you see in a mirror? What you see in a mirror, brothers and sisters, is the other side of the story. The opposite side of the story. And so the very fact that these two were to be mirror images of each other, as Genesis 2 verse 18 tells us, is that they had differences that were nevertheless complementary, but stressed their diversity from the very beginning. Now you might think, brothers and sisters, that this idea of diversity is simply an extension of the principle of hierarchy, but I don't think that it's so. I think that what we're being told is that from the very beginning of time that God ordained that the male and the female would have diversity of attribute so that they could fulfill the particular roles that he had in mind for them to be fulfilled. And I think that one of the great things about this principle is this, that we live in a world gone mad, brothers and sisters. We live in a world where divine principles are turned topsy-turvy, upside down. 
And what we're trying to do in these studies is to come back to the divine standard, irrespective of where the world may have taken us, and to celebrate the incredible wisdom of what the Father did from the very beginning. Now let me show you what he did do, because, well now come and have a look at this. This is splendid. Genesis chapter 3 and the story of the judgment of these two. Because, you see, I think that in the story of Genesis 3, and the judgment on the man, and the judgment on the woman, we have a marvellous illustration of this principle now, of diversity of attribute that the Father intended from the very beginning of time. Now, in Genesis 3, we have the judgment on the two. So what we're going to do now is, I'm going to take you through the judgment of the man, so that we might see, as it were, the crucial things in which he was judged responsible, and also by that means, we might see the particular attributes with which the Father has endowed the man. So, firstly then, just notice this passage, which is taken from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. So here's the judgment now on the man. And you'll notice the text that we've got in purple. I'm obviously moving far too aggressively at the front here. So, so notice the purple bit on, in the middle because we're going to make a, a point about this is that in sorrow shalt thou eat of it tells us that part of the judgment being outworked on the man was that he would experience a measure of sorrow. And I think that what we're being told here is that the measure of sorrow that the man would experience would be in the very realm of his responsibilities in life based on the attributes that God had given to him. Shall I say that again? Because it's easy to be distracted. I think that in this judgment upon the man, we not only have the sorrow that the man would experience, but we are effectively given the realm of his responsibility in the truth and the particular attributes that God had endowed the man with that he might perform those responsibilities. So here is, a, here is a summary then of these attributes that belong in the first instance to the man. So here they are. Now I should just preface my remarks here. Remember what I said at the start. If you think that one of these words you feel, oh, I'm not quite sure that's right, you just wait till you see the whole of the story here. Because I'm going to bring forth two overheads here. One about the man and one about the woman. And you need to see both of them before you react too strongly. So here firstly is then the question of the man. So from these verses in Genesis, we learn that man is to exercise leadership and thus to know the burden of responsibility. But he has been endowed with the power of logic to perform this. You see, the role that he would have in the outworking of this judgment was the leadership of his home. 
But the burden of responsibility would thus come upon him and he would feel that burden. But he's been given a peculiar gift by the Father that he might fulfill that leadership role and it's called the gift of logic. And before I go any further, that's not saying, by the way, that all brethren are logical. And it's not saying that all sisters are illogical. But what it's saying is that as a general principle, man thinks in a logical way and woman doesn't. Now I'm going to clarify what I mean by that in a minute, so just wait your patience. Man has a capacity for logic. He really does. He thinks in a logical pattern. He, he almost can't help but think in a logical pattern because that's the way God has designed him, that it should be so. And I believe that that's a blessing from the Father so that he might fulfill the leadership responsibilities that he has been endowed with in the outworking of the judgment of Genesis chapter 3. Now here's the second aspect of the judgment. Man is to make provision. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt bring forth not only bread for himself, brothers and sisters, but bread for his family. The man would labour to provide food for his household. He had to be not only the leader, but the provider. And in learning the principle of provision, he would know the weariness of effort. But he has been endowed with the blessing of strength to achieve this. And a man has been gifted with a capacity of strength over and above that of womankind, and it's a virtue from the Father, that they might fulfil the role of provider. And I know that sometimes, because of cultural things, that, that well maybe sometimes that gets turned upside down. Sometimes the woman is the earner in the household, and yet funny enough, even today we use the phrase, don't we, the breadwinner of the household. Probably comes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt provide the bread for the home. Well, it was to be man's responsibility. Now, I want you to notice these two key things, brethren, because, well, these are wonderful things. So what are men responsible for? They're responsible for the principle of leadership and provision. And you know that if you took those two ideas and brought them into ecclesial life and brethren accepted their responsibilities for leadership and spiritual provision, then the ecclesia would be nourished. So we've got to learn to live up to those responsibilities. But we've been blessed with the blessings of the power of logic and the virtue of strength that those things might be fulfilled in the outworking of our role. And I think that all of that is found hidden in the judgment of Genesis chapter 3. And that's the way God intended that it should be. So now I'm sure that the sisters are saying, well... If that's the man, then what exactly does he have in store for the woman? Well, it's not I, brothers and sisters, that have anything in store for the woman. But here's what the Genesis record says in the particular matter of the responsibility of the woman. And notice firstly the text then of Genesis 3 verse 16. I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now, wasn't there that same phrase in the judgment of the man? Yes, there was. In Genesis 3 verse 17, in sorrow shalt thou eat. But in Genesis 3 verse 16, in sorrow shalt thou bring forth children. 
So both the man and the woman would have a measure of sorrow in life. And I think that that sorrow was associated with their particular areas of responsibility. So man, leadership, the power of logic to perform, provision, the blessing of strength to accomplish. So now what is the responsibility of the woman here in the outworking of the judgment record of Genesis chapter 3? Well, here it is. You see, I think the first thing that we're being told in this judgment is that woman is to give support and thus to know the pain of empathy. But she has been endowed with the skill of intuition to perform this. Now you ask any sister and tell me that this is not true. Do sisters have that pain of empathy that they experience in the spirit of support that they give? And the answer is yes, of course they do. You see what Genesis 3 says, by the way? Have you read Genesis 3 carefully? Because what verse 16 says is, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. Or as the Revised Standard Version says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. And I don't think that Genesis 3 and verse 15 is talking simply about childbearing at all. I think it's talking about childbearing as a code word for the whole maternal instinct that belongs to womankind. You don't have to be a bearer of children for a woman to feel the principles of verse 16. It's planted within her. She cannot help it. Now take this business of logic and intuition, by the way. You see, imagine that you set a problem. You say, look, we want to get from there... To there, from point A to point B. How shall we do this? Well, when a brother has set that problem, he says, "Well, no, no, not A to B, but A to D." He says, "Well, that's easy. You go from A across up there to B, and from B you would make a a, a turn to go down to C, and then from C you'd move across at right angles, and you'll finally get to D if you do that." And he uses the power of logic to to devise that sequence and that process by which he will arrive at that proper conclusion, and rightly so. So then you say to a woman, I want to get from A to D. You think that that's the right direction to travel? She says, you say to the woman, where do you think we should go? She says, I think we should go from A to D and, and, and go that way. How do you know that? Oh, I just know. I just know that that's right. Now you see, you might laugh, but it's a funny thing. It's true that women use intuitive skills far more than they realize. And it's a perfectly legitimate means of reasoning. It's just different. Now remember what I said. That doesn't mean that all women are intuitive. Nor does it mean that all men lack the skill of intuition. We're talking about general trends here of the male and the female. And the fact is that men folk tend towards the logical. And women folk tend towards the intuitive. Why? Because God's blessed them with those skills. It's part of their makeup. From the beginning it was so. And not only is the woman to give support, 
But in the spirit of this principle of childbearing, she is to provide nurture and thus to know the anxiety of care. But she has been endowed with the gift of emotion to accomplish this. Now you see, the wonderful thing I think about these virtues is that what we're being told here is that the man and the woman had particular responsibilities that they would fulfill and that God has blessed them with special gifts that they might fulfill them and this is the diversity that he intended. That there is an absolute diversity between the male and the female, not just concerning their role, but with regard to their gifts of endowment. You know... Little boys pick up cars and by and large they tend to play with little cars rather than little dolls. It's just the way that little boys are made. And little girls do the reverse. And some people say, oh, that's just stereotyping. No, it's not. They just do it. It just happens. It's just planted there. We know that there are certain stages when a boy at school shoots ahead in mathematical subjects. Do you know why? Because they have a greater endowment towards the logical and the linear side of the brain. And there are other times when a girl goes ahead more quickly at school because it happens to be involved with the right side of brain activity, which is to do with gestalt and creativity and intuitive skills. And those periods of development in the male and the female are absolutely linked to the endowments of Genesis chapter 3. And God has planned that that should be so. And we live in a world that wants to pretend that that's all wrong. We live in a world that wants to pretend that males and females are identical and they never have been brothers and sisters because God made them different. And we ought to celebrate that diversity and be thankful that we understand the wisdom of the Father in doing this. I think it's a marvellous thing what's set forth here in terms of the difference. And it's true, you know, all of these things are true. A man will go to the meeting, I quote myself as an example, and I might see that there's a particular problem to be solved and I'll use my logical skills to solve that problem. But over here on the other side of the ecclesia, my wife will say, do you know that I think that person's not going too well at the meeting at the moment? How do you know? Oh, I just know. Some extra sensory skills that a woman has that a man, I just missed it. I never saw it. But a woman senses vibrations that a man doesn't. Tell me that it's not so. When a family gets to that delightful stage where their children have grown to teenage years and the father's car is borrowed, that the offspring might go to youth circle activities, there comes that first heart-rending evening when they're late home. Sometimes it might be so late for whatever circumstance, either good or ill, that father and mother have gone to bed. Now, Father Lewis loves his children dearly. But he loves his bed also. <laughs> and you know, the funny thing is that even if my children are out, that when I go to bed, my body says, bed, sleep. <laughs> Let us do so with alacrity. <laughs> And before you know it, I'm off and I'm fast asleep even though my children are not yet home. Do you think my wife goes to sleep? Oh no. She tosses and turns and tosses and turns until she hears the click of the front door that says that they're finally home. Then she gets up and hugs them and says, I've been so worried about you. You see, that's the spirit of childbearing of Genesis 3 verse 16. It's planted inside her to know the pain of empathy. She can't stop that. It's just there. And you don't need to have been a bearer of children to feel that. 
It's an endowment of womankind. You see, these are true things, brothers and sisters, aren't they? And this diversity was given in the wisdom of the Father. Leviticus chapter 12. Now, Leviticus chapter 12 is the law concerning, well, not just childbearing, but what ought to be done in terms of purification after childbearing. And it says in verse 1, And Yahweh spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a woman have conceived seed and born a male... Because, by the way, you see in verse 7, at the end of verse 7, this is the law for her that hath born a male or a female. And the word man-child in verse 2 is the same word translated male in verse 7. And the word maid-child in verse 5 is the same word translated female in verse 7. So coming back to verse 2. Speak unto the children of Israel, If a woman have conceived seed and born a male, then she shall be unclean seven days. According to the days of the separation of her infirmity shall she be unclean. And in the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised, and she shall then continue in the blood of her purifying three and thirty days. She shall touch no hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying be fulfilled. But if she bear a female, Then she shall be unclean two weeks as in her separation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying threescore and six days. And when the days of her purifying are fulfilled for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring a lamb of the first year for a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation of the priest. So you notice what the law is concerning childbirth here. And you see, the first thing to notice, brothers and sisters, is this that the mother is unclean, not the child. And yet for all of that, the purification process clearly relates in some way to the child that's been born because the number of the days for the birth of a male are different to the number of days for the birth of a female. So the purification process in some way for the mother relates to whether it's a male or a female child that's been born. Of course, you know what the burning question of Leviticus 12 is? You see, what we're being told is this. Verse 2, first of all, she's unclean seven days for a man-child. Then she's unclean for another 33 days. So seven days and another 33 days means she's unclean for 40 days. But if it's a female, verse 5... She's unclean for 14 days, that's twice 7. Then she's unclean for another 66 days, verse 5, making a total of 80 days. So the burning question of Leviticus 12 is, is the male half the period of the female, or is the female twice the male? What thinkest thou? And you might say, well, there is no difference. Oh, yes, there is a difference. 
You see, one of these must be the standard and the other is either half the standard or double the standard, depending on which one you think. And I think that the standard is the standard of the man-child or the male. And the reason for that is this, that firstly we're given the standard of the male from verse 2 to verse 4, and then verse 5 starts with the word but. And so what we're being given is the benchmark to begin with, and the but of verse 5 tells us that now we have a change to that which is the standard. And we will have, in fact, with the female child, a doubling of the normal periods. And that makes sense, by the way, because is seven days a known number, a recognisable period? Yes, it is. Is 33 days a recognisable period? Yes, it is. Is there some total being 40 days, a standard biblical period? Yes, it is. 40 is the number of probation. And I think that those periods relating to the man-child are the benchmark standard and now they're doubled for a female. I think there's one other reason, by the way, why, why we know that, is that the seven days uncleanness of verse 2... Well, come and have a look at chapter 15 just for a moment. In chapter 15 and verse 19, in the laws of uncleanness in Leviticus we're told... Leviticus 15 verse 19, if a woman have an issue and her issue in her flesh be blood, she shall be put apart seven days and whosoever toucheth her shall be unclean until the even. So what the law says in Leviticus 15 and verse 19 is that the standard period of uncleanness for an issue of blood was seven days. Well, that's the standard period here of Leviticus chapter 12 and verse 2, isn't it? For the birth of the man-child. So it's the, it's the numbers for the female that have been doubled and not the other way around. And of course you realise the significance of this because the blood of her purifying, verse 4, was for 33 days and on the very next day, said verse 6, she was to make an atoning sacrifice. So the sacrifice of atonement is made in the 34th day. And Christ made atonement in the 34th year of his life. And we suddenly realise that the story of Leviticus chapter 12 is actually a type of the man-child being the Lord and the female child being the bride of Christ. And the whole story of Leviticus 12 and the different periods of purification is based upon the diversity of the male and the female and what they represent. The one is Christ and the other is his bride. And the whole argument of Leviticus 12 is based upon that principle of diversity between the two that has been established in the book of Genesis and chapters 1 to 3. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, we, we have the law concerning clothing. And Deuteronomy 22 doesn't say a great deal, but what it says, I think, is instructive. Because what Deuteronomy 22 says is simply this in the fifth verse. The woman 
shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. Now you see, I believe, brothers and sisters, that whatever you think verse 5 might mean, that at the heart of the law of Deuteronomy 22 and verse 5 was a recognition of the diversity that exists between the sexes. And that part of the intention, in fact probably the fundamental part of the intention of God, is that anything that confuses or blurs the distinction between the sexes that God established in Genesis is to be abhorred, including clothing, so that the sanctity of the two sexes might be preserved and their diversity celebrated. So I don't think that this was particularly uh, a a law here concerning uh, preventing licentiousness or opposing idolatrous practices. It may have been so, but I think that the primary purpose of this law was to maintain the sanctity of the distinction of the sexes created in Genesis 1 to 3 when God said that they are to be diverse the one from the other and that any violation that wipes out this distinction is not something that has the approval of God you know brothers and sisters we live in a world that's trying to do just that don't we We live in a world that's trying to blur the distinction between the sexes. You walk down the road and you'll see a couple in front of you and they've got the same sneakers and the same jeans and the same sweat tops and the same ponytails and you're not sure for a while which one is which. Because the world has created a whole new genre of clothing known as unisex. And the whole principle of unisex clothing is let's not have a difference between male and female. The father said they are different and I never want that to be changed. I want that difference to be celebrated and respected and revered and absolutely enjoyed by those who follow my commandments. Because I think that in the father's wisdom that diversity is part of the, of the, of the tremendous blessing of gift that he's given to us so that we might work the one with the other and respect and value each other's contributions in ecclesial life in the way that God has blessed us. The law of Deuteronomy 22 and verse 5 is based on the principle of diversity. Absolutely on the principle of diversity. Can we have a look at Proverbs chapter 27? In Proverbs 27, just an interesting little passage here concerning the difference between the male and the female and their respective actions in life. We're told in Proverbs 27, um, just hold your hands in Proverbs 27 in your left hand and and, uh, Proverbs 31 in the right hand. So we need both of these simultaneously. So Proverbs 27 and verse 23 in the left hand and Proverbs 31 and the alphabet of the virtuous woman in the right. And you see what happens here because it says in Proverbs 27 verse 23, Be diligent to know the state of thy flocks, 
Look well to thy herds, for riches are not forever, and doth the crown endure to every generation. The hay appeareth, the tender grass showeth itself, the herbs of the mountains are gathered, the lambs are for thy clothing, the goats are the price of the field, and thou shalt have goats milk enough for thy food, for the food of thy household, and for the maintenance of thy maidens. What is the man supposed to do, brothers and sisters? He's supposed to exercise the principles of leadership and provision. So he walks out, and he looks after his flocks, he gathers in the herbage, he makes sure he collects the wool and he provides the food for his household. He is the leader and the provider and he fulfills those responsibilities in Proverbs 27 verses 23 to 27. Now look at the woman in Proverbs 31 verse 15. She rises while it is yet night and giveth meat to her household and a portion to her maidens. She's not afraid, verse 21, she's not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet, she maketh herself coverings of tapestry, her clothing is silk and purple. So what's the spirit of the woman here? Nurture and support in the household. The husband has laboured to produce the food for the household, the wife labours to dispense the blessings of that for the nurture of the household. And they work together harmoniously that that household may be blessed. But they work, brothers and sisters, according to the diversity of their skills. So the man is for leadership and provision and the woman is for support and nurture. And between them, In the words of Brother Roberts, they form a beautiful unit, heirs together of the grace of life. So now come to the New Testament record then and and see how now that spirit of diversity is taken up in the teaching of the Apostle Paul in the first of Timothy chapter 2. So here now is the Apostle's teaching on diversity. So we believe that Paul teaches the principle of equality in Galatians 3. That Paul teaches the principle of hierarchy in the first of Corinthians 11. And now that he teaches the principle of diversity in the first of Timothy and chapter 2. And here now is the roles of the man and the woman in ecclesial life that the apostle lays down, and I think it's based on the principle of diversity of Genesis 1 to 3. So here it is. Reading from the first of Timothy, chapter 2 and verse 8. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now the Diaglot translates that phrase as follows. I appoint therefore the men to pray in every place. I appoint the men to pray in every place. Why should the men pray in every place? Well, brothers and sisters, because to offer up prayers of thanksgiving and praise to the Father is in itself an act of worship. And the spirit of leadership of worship in the Ecclesia belongs to the man. So the teaching of Paul here is that I appoint the men in every place. Why? Well, because that's their role. This is the spirit of leadership and provision. They lead the Ecclesia in those particular roles of mediation, of headship, 
end of leadership. And so prayer here is, I think, a symbol of worship. They are to be the leaders of the ecclesia. So the men had that responsibility. Mind you, says the record, they've got to lift up very special hands because they're not just ordinary hands. They've got to be holy hands without wrath and doubting. So in their very actions of leadership in the ecclesia, the men have to be in good control of their emotions, unaffected by their feelings towards others, that they pray in the spirit of representing the entire community for whom they pray, that their hands are holy hands, meaning that they are utterly focused on that purpose for which they have been given, the responsibility of leadership and provision, to provide spiritual bread to the home, holy hands, with no distractions of other emotional considerations. They've got a responsibility to give leadership in that way. And then you notice what verse 9 says, In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, in like manner, says verse 9. Now what do you think that means when the verse starts with this phrase, in like manner? And I think that what we're being told in the ninth verse is this, is that whatever the women are to do in ecclesial life, whatever spirit they have, whatever role they are to perform, They're to do it in the same spirit as the men. Just that their field of endeavour is different. And it's different because they're diverse. And God has made that that should be so. But it's the same spirit. The same spirit of dedication to the Father. The same equality of mind that understands divine principles. So their roles are different. But their attitude is the same. And you know what the focus of the woman folk should be, says verses 9 and 10. Well, at the end of the verse it says, that which professeth godliness with good works. So the emphasis of the woman is on her good works, verse 10. Now hold your hand in Timothy and come back again to Proverbs 31. Because, well, just look at this. Here's the key then. So, so the man's hands are lifted up for leadership and provision in the ecclesia after the manner of his judgment in Genesis chapter 1. What about the woman's hands? Well, that's the key word, isn't it, of the, of the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31. So just have a look at it. Verse 13. She seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. Verse 16, with the fruit of her hands, she planteth a vineyard. Verse 19, she layeth her hands to the spindle, and her hands hold the distaff. Verse 20, she stretcheth out her hands to the poor, she reacheth forth her hands to the needy. And finally, says verse 31, give her of the fruit of her hands, That is, let her own works praise her in the gates. So the key word of the virtuous woman is not her voice, not her speech, but her hands. And the hands are the hands of good works. So coming back to Timothy, therefore, the man's hands are lifted up for leadership and provision But the hands of the woman reach forth in the spirit of support and nurture in ecclesial life 
after the basis of the judgment of Genesis chapter 3. And they're both suited for those things by the blessings of God, in the wisdom of God. And then verse 11 says in the first of Timothy 2, that the woman learn in silence with all subjection, that I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now, by the way, in verse 12, on this occasion, the definite article is not there. So when it says that she is not to usurp authority over the man, it should be that she's not to usurp authority over a man, any man. But is it any man? And the answer is, well, no, it's a special man. It's a man in the ecclesia. Ecclesial activities and ecclesial responsibilities and ecclesial, res ecclesial relationships. And in the context of ecclesial life, the teaching of the Apostle Paul is that she is not to usurp authority over any man in the ecclesia. Why not? Well, because, well, because the principle of hierarchy is compromised if she is to do so in the exercise of her responsibilities. And now the scriptural basis is given for what the Apostle Paul says. And here's his argument. Verse 13. For Adam... Ooh, for Adam. Now where might the Apostle's mind be, do you think, in his argument on the theme of diversity between the male and the female with respect to their functions in ecclesial life? And he's taken us straight back to Genesis, hasn't he? To Genesis chapters 1 to 3. This really is the foundation, brothers and sisters. So let's have a look. Verse 13. Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. I'd like you to hold your hand in Timothy and this time come back to Genesis chapter 2. Because we want to just have a look at these two records together and just piece together the story. Because I think that this phrase, this passage in Timothy, is perhaps not as well understood as it should be. You know, I've heard this quoted on more than one occasion. You know, after this light. Adam was never deceived, you know. Just a woman was. Well, I don't think that that's exactly what Timothy means. I think that what Timothy is teaching... Well, come on, have a look. Come back to Genesis first of all. Now, if you've got your hand in Timothy, don't lose that because we're going to want to flash back to Timothy at the appropriate moment and, and capture what he says. But this is what Genesis says. Chapter 2, verse 16. And many of you will have seen this before, but I think there's force to it, you see. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Why would they die if they ate of that tree? Because of disobedience. But when the woman is asked to recite the commandment that she has received from Adam in chapter 3 and verse 2, she says... We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. 
And she adds the phrase, neither shall ye touch it, which was not in the commandment given to Adam. Why does Eve think that they will die if they eat of the fruit of the tree? Because, she says, there's poison in the tree. But that's not what the commandment said. The commandment said that they would die if they disobeyed God's law. Now somewhere between the giving of the commandment to Adam in Genesis chapter 2 and the woman's recitation of the commandment in Genesis chapter 3, there's been a slight but subtle change that's altered the emphasis of what it was that would bring death. Now who was at fault there? Well, maybe there was a deficiency on both sides. So now come back to Timothy, because you see, when Timothy says in verse 14, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression, I don't think for a moment that that verse exonerates Adam, brothers and sisters. I think that verse 14 is telling us that they both failed, but for different reasons. Eve was intellectually deceived. And that, by the way, completely. She was intellectually deceived into sin by the reasoning of the serpent, whose flawed logic she did not follow. But Adam was emotionally and physically beguiled into sin. And he fell for a different reason. And why did it happen? Because Eve usurped authority. She led, she spoke, and Adam hearkened to his wife. But the one thing he failed to do, brothers and sisters, was to correctly instruct his wife. And I think that therefore the judgment of the first of Timothy, chapter 2, when it says concerning the woman is that she is not to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, uh, is I think in verse 14 or 13 and 14, taking us all the way back to the ruling in the garden. And the spirit of Paul's judgment effectively is this, that from henceforth, from the days of Genesis, Adam's sons have been required to do what Adam failed to do. And that is to spiritually instruct their women. And since the days of Genesis, Eve's daughters have been asked to do what Eve failed to do. And that is to listen to God's word spoken by their men. You see the balance of what the Apostle's really saying here. And in the reinforcement of the spirit of, of the teaching of Genesis here, what the Apostle really does is highlight the fact that that spirit of diversity that gives to them different roles and blesses them with the necessary gifts that they might perform those roles is all of the Father in his wisdom because of what had happened so long ago. And then he says in verse 15, Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with sobriety. Now, verse 15 is very interesting because you see what it says. Firstly, it says, Notwithstanding, she shall be saved if they continue. So you notice the change. It starts with one singular woman and ends up with all women. 
she, singular, shall be saved as long as they, plural, continue. So what begins as a ground of judgment for one woman here becomes the basis for all women folk that they might p- pursue a certain course and their salvation is the same as man. They're both saved, but in what respect is she saved? In what sphere of, a- of activity is she saved? Well, the record says she's saved in the childbearing. Now, what do you think that might mean, brothers and sisters? The phrase, and by the way, the definite article is there, the childbearing. What could that mean? In the first of Timothy, chapter 2, and verse 15. Well, there's all sorts of possible reasons. Some people have suggested that it means that she will be saved in spite of childbearing. But it can't mean that, can it? Because some godly women have lost their lives in childbearing. And some very ungodly women have been preserved. So it can't mean that she shall be saved in spite of childbearing. Well, what about that it means that she shall be saved on account of childbearing? Well, now it can't mean that either because to suggest that would be to imply that childbearing is itself meritorious for salvation. And what that does is impute inferiority to the unmarried woman or to the childless wife. And that's not right. So it can't mean that, can it? And then it's been suggested that it means that she shall be saved by means of the childbearing and that the childbearing is the bearing of the promised seed, the seed of the woman of Genesis chapter 3. And, and, and it could be so. But then by the time that the apostle had already written the first of Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, the seed of the woman had already been born. The seed of the woman had already come. And even then there was only one woman involved and even though that woman was, was, was the bringer forth of Messiah and it is true that woman will be saved because of that seed coming forth, it's also true that so will all men be saved in that seed. And yet I think this verse is about what peculiar relates to womankind and not to men. So I don't think it means that she shall be saved because of the childbearing of the Messiah himself. So what does the apostle mean? I think he means, brothers and sisters, I think he's using the phrase the childbearing as a code word. She shall be saved as long as she continues in the sphere of the childbearing. Now where is he getting that phrase from? And the answer is Genesis 3 and verse 15. And this brings us right back to the start of the story, you see. Because remember what we said tonight in the diversity of roles, that the man was for leadership and provision, but the woman, Genesis 3 verse 16, sorry, I should be saying verse 16, Genesis 3 verse 16, I will greatly multiply thy pain in childbearing, says the Revised Standard Version. Your pain in childbearing. Now, remember what I said at the start. I don't think that childbearing just means the bearing of children. I think that the phrase childbearing here that, the, that is mentioned in Genesis relates to the whole makeup of womankind whereby they feel that pain of empathy and that anxiety of care that's just there automatically within them. But it leads to the spirit of nurture and support and it empowers them to do that. She shall be saved, says Paul, provides, provides, provided she continues in that sphere of activity that God has asked her to fulfill. 
which is the, the, the role of nurture and support, summarized by the apostle in this phrase, the work of childbearing. And all the spirit of maternal instinct that is captured in that word you know, brothers and sisters, I just think that these are wonderful principles that the Father has set forth. Let's just summarize these again, shall we, and just, just treasure these little summaries. Man and woman were given equal capacity to receive and understand divine principles and to share in the prospect of God's salvation. This equality of mind and hope is to be appreciated. From the beginning, they were given that equality of mind in spiritual things. And yet we've also seen that man and woman were subject to the divine order, which assigned to them respectively the roles of leadership and support in God's purpose. And that this hierarchy of order and function needs to be respected. And this evening now, we found in our study this, that man and woman were endowed with differing characteristics that enable them to fulfill differing responsibilities in their work in God's service. This diversity of attribute and skill is to be celebrated. And so it should be, brothers and sisters, in a world God-mad that wants to acknowledge that there is neither male nor female because there's only android unisex. We want to celebrate the fact that God made them different from the beginning, endowed them with blessings so that they could respectively fulfill that diversity of function. We are blessed to understand divine principles, brothers and sisters. And now, of course, we have the triangle. Three points of reference that need to be balanced against each other. Equality, hierarchy, and diversity. And these three things are constantly juxtaposed, the one against the other. So how is all this outworked? How do we find the balance between those things so that we tip not too far this way or move too far that way? Well, of course, they've all got to be worked out in life itself. And it's in the ecclesia that those three principles now are going to be balanced up and given expression. And that all happens within the activity of the ecclesia. And so God willing, in our study tomorrow morning, we'll come into the ecclesia and see the brother and the sister, the male and the female, the man and the woman, at work in the service of the Father to fulfill these three great attributes that were laid down at the foundation of the world.